Dark Arenas shows us that the world can be a dark place. And until recently, I thought I knew the depths of that darkness, especially in the place I call home. But it turns out I was wrong. I've spent over a year investigating the death of 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr., hoping to learn exactly how he died and why his body was found across a strip of railroad tracks so far from his home. But what I ended up finding was so much more. In this season of my show, Counterclock, I uncover a string of crimes and mysterious deaths that unveil darkness and corruption right in my home state. Listen to Counterclock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. The content of Dark Arenas includes topics and subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of AudioChuck or its employees. Information discussed by the host and interviewees includes content related to crimes against children, abuse, acts of terrorism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. If pop culture has unequivocally sold us one thing, it's the crystal clear image of what we think the face of organized crime looks like. Personas like The Godfather. Don Corleone, give me justice. You don't ask for respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Buying this Hollywood image or any others like it, hook, line, and sinker, would be a big mistake, as ill-advised of a mistake as double-crossing, say, the mob. Because when it comes down to it, the face of organized crime in America is ever-evolving. Shape-shifting, every time a new drug, technology, or emerging industry begins to dominate the market. Somewhere underneath the upticks of gleaming capitalism are organized criminals. And don't just take my word for it. Because in this episode of Dark Arenas, I'm getting a crash course in the underworld of organized crime, thanks to a man who battled it for decades and came out the other side unscathed. His name is Dave DeVillers, and he was so successful at prosecuting organized criminal enterprises that some of the most notorious gangs in the world gave him a rather sinister nickname, The Devil Man.
There was gold plating everywhere inside the Huntington Building skyscraper that sat on South High Street in downtown Columbus, Ohio. Gold glittered on the walls, floors, door handles, handrails, everywhere, you name it. There were dozens of floors filled with business firms and law offices. The security desk I had to check in with on level three was no joke. Two men who looked like ex-cops checked my ID, confirmed that I had an appointment with Dave DeVillers somewhere in the vast upstairs. Then they directed me to one specific elevator that a guard had to swipe a key card across in order for me to ride up. One more ID check and an intercom conversation outside of a locked glass door a few levels later, and I was finally through. A really nice woman working as a receptionist escorted me inside the law office I was scheduled to conduct my interview in. She asked me to sit down on a white leather couch in a waiting room that overlooked downtown. She then went to get Dave. As I waited for them to reappear, I took a minute to gaze out over Columbus's busy streets. My first thought was that it seemed like all roads led into downtown, kind of like spokes in a wheel. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe the roads in downtown were pipelines out, reaching far away from the city center. Honestly, before I could think any harder about which one it was, I heard footsteps behind me and turned around to see Dave DeVillers with an outstretched hand. He wore blue jeans and a dark gray t-shirt that center logo mimicked the iconic Air Jordan Nike logo. But instead of the silhouette of the leaping basketball legend on the front, the logo said Aria, and had the silhouette of the famous Game of Thrones character soaring through the air, wielding a dagger. We joked about the shirt, and I shamefully admitted that I never finished the popular series. In both his demeanor and his attire, Dave was, to put it nicely, relaxed. His head of white hair was tussled and uncombed. He was chill. Which surprised me, slightly, considering mere weeks before our interview, he was working as a United States attorney. Yeah, like the top dog when it comes to federal prosecutors. Dave was relieved of his duties as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Ohio after President Biden took office in 2021. Dave had been appointed by President Trump, so after the election, Dave's days of handpicked government service were numbered. It happens to a lot of top-level federal employees after an election, so no hard feelings. Dave has taken his firing in stride, though. He's a married father who now has more time on his hands than he's ever had. He's still a practicing attorney, though, in the private sector, because he's not throwing in the towel on his career just quite yet. As we took our seats in his office, one of the first things Dave said was that, despite never knowing if he'd have job security working for state or federal departments of justice, he wouldn't trade his 20-plus years as a prosecutor for anything. Why? Because Dave lives and breathes to stop organized crime, a pervasive scourge he says is all around us and we can't even see it. There are legitimate businesses that thrive based on organized crime. They're your neighbors. So, you know, we've had a number of cases where the good drug dealers, quite frankly, that are in their 30s and 40s and 50s, kind of made it to some extent, maybe did some time or kind of graduated and was able to launder their money. You know, so like they may have have some chicken businesses and that's what here, there's actually a particular one, or some bars or anything that was cash-based and they were able to launder it successfully. He had me at chicken businesses because all I could think about was that popular television series, Breaking Bad, which, shamefully, I admit, I never finished either. 
I guess sometimes art really does imitate reality, though. Anyway, when Dave first started out as a Franklin County prosecutor nearly 30 years ago in Ohio, he was fresh out of law school. And for some reason, even he can't really explain it, he latched on to organized crime cases right away. Did a couple murders, and then I eventually was named the director of our gang organized crime unit. And this is the 90s, so there's a lot, there's a lot of murders going on, like, unfortunately, like, like today. But it was, it was pretty bad, especially the gang murders. In the 2000s, it was more... Like those gangs turned more into organized crime in that they got older and more mature. They want to make money. So it was mostly drug trade and they kind of got along better. They work with each other um, if they needed to. And then it kind of got more violent, I think, like around 2006 on. The escalation of gang violence Dave saw emerge in the early 2000s revolved around one thing, identity organized crime changes. So when, when I started, it was really gangs. It was like bloods, crips, folks, gangster disciples. And, and you know, they, yeah, they weren't actually talking to people in L.A. or anything. They're their own gang. They took on, you know, their personas, their, their habits and stuff. And it was literally times when, when people were getting shot for wearing a blue bandana on a, on a street he's not supposed to be on. And, and it was just that. It, was just, it wasn't really about money. It was about just these kind of rival gangs shooting at each other. Dave says the one thing you've got to understand about some criminal enterprises is that it's not all about the money, guns, and drugs for them. For many, it's about ideology and ingrained identities. He compares the intense dogma some gangs have to that of terrorist organizations. I would say very much that organized crime is organized crime, whether it's terrorism or not. I'd argue that MS-13, they're so freaking weird about the stuff they do. They're, they've got this bizarre dogma to them. They're not really rich gang. They don't make a lot of money. They're just, they're kind of like, you know, ideology, kind of like, kind of like... Uh, There's more ideology yeah. than, than purpose. Yeah. yeah, they're like Vikings or something. They're just, you know, this strange sort of group that, that does these things. They make a little bit of money, but they're not rich off it. Since about 2015, Dave's caseload and number of defendants grew bigger and bigger, mostly because rival gangs started burying hatchets, mending fences, and brokering partnerships with one goal in mind. Move more drugs, make more profit. Plain and simple. This idea of why fight one another when we can both mutually benefit from a partnership. Dave's case-in-point example of this kind of conglomerization is the Sinaloa Cartel. The Sinaloa is an international crime organization based out of Mexico that's said to be one of the most powerful drug trafficking syndicates in the world. It gave rise to drug kingpins like El Chapo. After a major crackdown in the 80s and 90s, the organization splintered into subgroups, with the most dominant one cropping up in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Dave says in the years since it fractured, the cartel has rebuilt and slowly invaded many major American cities. Sinaloa controls Columbus. And, you know, they at first, the Sinaloa was here kind of on their own doing the street sales of drugs. But now they're complete bad with, uh, with the Columbus guys and, and Dayton guys, quite frankly. I mean, they, they're all in complete. There's, it's, a, it's a market. It basically, it's, it's like a, a franchise. They, they come with kilos of, now it's fentanyl. You know, it's cocaine and, and heroin for a long time, and now it's fentanyl. Easy to move, you know, small amounts and kilos. Of, like, could be 100 kilos of heroin with a kilo of fentanyl. So they bring it in. They sell it to these people, the people in Columbus. So sometimes they sell it here, but often Columbus is a source city, so it goes to West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. That's kind of how... And, you know, there are people 
in you know my colleagues in West Virginia go, why, why am I why do I have all these guys with 614 tattoos in my jail? It's because they're all the 614 Columbus. A source city. That's what Dave referred to Columbus as, which got me thinking back to all those streets I was watching down below while sitting in the waiting room. Maybe my second thought was right after all. Maybe all roads don't lead to Columbus. Maybe they lead away from it. Columbus is, is one of those cities where there's 100 miles to the west is Indianapolis, 100 miles to the east is Pittsburgh, 100 miles north is Cleveland, 100 miles south is, is Cincinnati. And, and Columbus is the biggest of all those cities. You know, it's, it used to not be that big of a city. It grew. So it's the biggest of all those cities. And you can just go to one place and that's your hub where everything else goes. And they make connections here. And that's the real thing is the connections that they've made. And there are people that actually from Ohio that have gone to Mexico and found the connections. You know, it goes both ways. It's a scary thought. I mean, honestly, how can you catch anyone if their enterprise is that spread out and that powerful? Dave's answer is one word, or rather an acronym, RICO, Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. The legal hammer federal prosecutors wield, like Arya Stark, wields a sharp weapon. Do you think RICO cases happen a lot more than people think? Federally, yeah. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Now, my little guy is still young, but I can already tell that integrating fun ways to learn is going to be a game changer for him. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access IXL on the go through the app or your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Dark Arena's listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com arenas. Visit IXL.com arenas to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When it comes to learning a new language, which is something that's a passion of mine, because, hey, I'm in the field of communication. I can't help but love language. But what I really want most is a software or a program that I can trust. I want to make sure that what I'm paying for, I'm actually going to be able to use in the real world. And that's why I love Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone has been trusted for 30 years with millions of users, and there are 25 languages offered. 25. I'm currently brushing up on my French because I learned it pretty well a couple of years ago, but I've gotten away from it. And one of my favorite things about the app is that true accent feature where you get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. And when it comes to a language like French, I obviously want to make sure I'm doing the accent right. So whether you're traveling abroad or trying to break down a communication barrier with a new friend, Rosetta Stone is something you should look into because you don't want to put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Arena's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
Visit rosettastone.com arenas. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com arenas. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the Federal Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, also known as RICO, was enacted in 1970. The statute explains that it's unlawful for a person or persons to acquire, operate, or receive income from an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. The definition also includes a lot of other things, but that's the gist. According to Dave, there are state RICO laws as well, but the one he liked to use the most was the federal one because, well, everything is bigger and better in federal court. We have to prove that an enterprise exists, so it's a group of people associated in fact. We also have to prove an interstate nexus federally, and that's drugs or guns because they all come in from, you know, the cocaine and, and heroin isn't made in Columbus, so it's easy. That's the easy part. What isn't easy is connecting all of the conspiring players who are involved in a racketeering enterprise, which can be tricky. You want to connect these people to, the, to each other. It's hard to do. They use nicknames and street names, and, but, you know, you, you get their phones, you get their contact lists. You also get the people closest to targets to give up information, sometimes even subconsciously. Girlfriend or wife bring them in, they'd have no idea where to come in. You start asking them questions and, you know, maybe we're tickling a wire, we're on a wire or on a jail call. We want them to know and say, what the hell's going on? Not knowing we're listening. And sometimes they don't know what they're there for and they can slip up. Sometimes we'll say, do you have your phone with you? Can you pull out your phone? Can you tell us, do you have a contact list? And that's how we find out like nicknames. So do you have, uh, can you pull up your contact? I'm like, sure. Like, who's A? A is, you know, A-Dog. Or who is A-Dog? A-Dog is Christopher Harris. What's his phone number? Boom. And you, you, it's been, you can make two hours doing that. But right then you've got, then you go up by the pen and get all these numbers. You can put all these people together and there's your enterprise. By far the best option, Dave says, will help a prosecutor prove a RICO case and avoid significant opposition from a defense attorney is taking out the lowest members of a criminal organization and getting them to turn state's evidence. The little players, you know, the ones who will sing like birds if they're pinched hard enough. You kind of start to arrest people on little things and, and other people flip. You know, they don't want to go to, they don't want the death penalty or go to prison for life. So they'll go to prison for 15, 20 years and cooperate against the guys that, you know, are going to face the death penalty or, or life. It's that last part that he mentioned, the getting people to flip part. Dave says that's oftentimes critical to developing a strong RICO prosecution. When it gets to that point, prosecutors have to be willing to strike a plea deal with an unsavory or violent criminal in exchange for damning information about a criminal enterprise that investigators would never be able to obtain otherwise. There's two things in the criminal justice system that the vast majority of prosecutors and the vast majority of defense attorneys agree upon, and that's jury trials. The other one is plea agreements. Dave says plea agreements with criminals are just part of the process. There's no way around it. I guess that falls into the category of a necessary evil. How can you sit across from a person who you believe is a murderer or a drug dealer and say, in order to get three more of you, I'm gonna make a deal with you. What is that dynamic like? 
I mean, yeah, you have to. I mean, that's just the way you've got to do it. Your, your job is just, isn't just to prosecute, it's to stop crime. And if you're not cutting deals with people, you're never, ever going to be able to prove your case. You're never going to be able to find out what happened, whether you use them, you know, in, in an undercover capacity or just for information. Somebody that's already got caught doing something horrible, and, you know, you're going to try to get them to find, tell you what happened. Dave's opinion on this is unwavering. He believes that snitches are essential to cracking an organized crime case. But he says there is a line prosecutors have to draw somewhere. There's certain rules. You, you don't cut a deal with a murderer to go after the co-conspirators, right? You don't cut a deal with a rapist. You don't cut a deal with a child abuser. You, you know, you've got to be able to justify not just to yourself and to your bosses, but to eventually try a fact of why you did this. So there is accountability in it and credibility. Prosecutors are also beholden to victims' families to ensure that a plea agreement is what the family wants. Dave says it was rare in his career to have a family not understand the reason why he wanted to cut a bad guy or a bad woman a deal in exchange for a better shot at justice. Eventually, you may go to one of them and say, I want to take the guy that killed your child, and I want to cut him a deal to cooperate against everybody else. But you'd be surprised how often... They agree with you. If you spend the time to explain what's going on, explain what could do, and like, I'm going to send these other people to prison the rest of their life to kill your son, but to be able to do that, I need this guy. I need to convince him. He's still going to go to prison. He's going to go for a long time. He's still going to admit to what he did. That's a big part of it, that he admits to what he did and cooperates in open court. That helps them kind of understand what's, what's going on. Whether it's a RICO case or a shoplifting case, in general, Dave says the criminal justice system in America would collapse if plea deals weren't in play. Without them, he says the sheer volume of cases would be unsustainable. Only about 3% of all cases go to trial, right? In criminal. So you're like, well, that seems 97 or please, that doesn't seem right. But what, what that allows us to do is those cases, those 3% of cases, we're, we're allowed to take our time and the jurors and use those to scrutinize those cases, right? Those are the cases where they're saying, no, I didn't do it. And we're saying you did. And you know, you're, you have the time, the energy, the finances to be able to do that. We can do that. And, but if there's no plea agreements, if we were trying all 100% of cases, our, our system would collapse. Another essential tool to successfully taking down organized crime rings is the use of criminal informants. People who are on the inside of the beast who either got squeezed or jammed up on a small offense and flip, or are someone who are still actively participating in a criminal enterprise, but have gotten assurities from the government that they'll be protected. These are people who know information that could get them killed. Dave has had experience with all kinds of informants and witnesses, some of whom didn't survive. He thought of one man right off the top of his head. Bill John Decker, this was a RICO case um, involving these guys who are basically, this is kind of more traditional organized crime. They're a bunch of like guys from the West Side. They're like this, this white gang, if you like, white organized crime. Older guys, like families and families, like their grandfather was a criminal and criminal and criminal. And they would, their specialty was stealing um, Harley Davidson's, um, basically taking them all apart and so the VIN isn't there and they can kind of resell them mostly in Kentucky and West Virginia. But this one guy, Bill John Deck, was really good at stealing them. Like he knew how to get on it, crank it up and go. We catch him, he flips. We know they're going after him. We have him in a safe house, like in the east side of Columbus. We know they find out about it. So we get rid of him and we send him to Pennsylvania and they were kind of watching him. And so the FBI was bringing him, you know, kind of to me. 
And then um, we're about a week away from trial. He's sitting right in front of me. I'm kind of prepping. I'm like, all right. He goes, he goes hey, I need to go back to the, um, he drove, just kind of drove himself. He wasn't witness protection program. Didn't want that, but he took kind of the witness protection light. Because I got booze back at that place. Can I go get that? I'm like, no, you can't go back there. You know they're trying to kill you. He's like, yeah, but they won't be there. I'm like, no, you cannot go back there. You gotta just go back home. Or I'm gonna call FBI now and take you back. And they're like, no, no, I'm good. I'll just go back. And sure enough, he went out there, right? And there's a, I mean, I still have pictures. He just got riddled on the porch. They're waiting for him. And he got just, you know, killed. Does a case collapse? That case, a lot of it did. We still went to trial. We still convicted him of RICO. I think we got reversed in a bunch of accounts, though. So, yeah, organized crime rings don't like it when one of their own turns against them. Dave knew every informant or witness that he struck a deal with was putting their life on the line. And you know that whole time heals all wounds, it's water under the bridge kind of thing? Well, there's none of that in the organized crime world. None. Dave's exhibit A for this Tommy Henderson. This guy, Tommy Henderson, he's an old-time organized crime guy here in Columbus. In the 1980s, he robbed a bank in Mankin, Georgia. Got like $350,000 out with these, these other people he's with. They get back to Columbus, they get the money. Two of the people that got cooperated, you know, got kind of caught. He ended up, they ended up cooperating. He killed another witness, one of the guys that was with him, because he thought he was going to flip. The other people end up flipping too. Goes to trial in Georgia, gets convicted of the bank robbery, gets like 12, 13 years. These people are in a witness protection program, they leave. They're in it for 10, eight years, they get out of it, they come back to Columbus, and both of them are killed by him, by him, within two years. So he does his time, and then about a decade later, he kills the witnesses who testified yeah. against him, just for principle? Yeah, well, oh, absolutely principle. One in 96 on his birthday, and one in 97 on his birthday. And it's not just criminal informants who've had to watch their backs. For years, Dave himself wore a target around his neck, one that almost cost him everything. The judge calls us up and calls them up. They, Dave, your, your family's, uh, you get call them. They're on their way to New York because they're, they're going to put a bomb in my house. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. When you face off with organized criminal enterprises for a living, odds are your life isn't going to be a cakewalk. You're dealing with some really dangerous people. Dave knows firsthand that organized criminal syndicates will do anything to undermine a federal investigation or trial. Anything, including taking out a lead prosecutor. Someone will step in my place if I, something happened. I mean, they, there'd probably be a lot of people wanting to do it, you know, because that's just the way it is. But it's mostly disrupting because they know that it'll, it'll slow things down and maybe a statute will 
confrontations problem or they want to intimidate witnesses and things. As a federal attorney who focused solely on shutting down organized crime, Dave represented a threat, even though enterprises wouldn't formally recognize him as one. During his career, he learned that criminals across the American Midwest and overseas began referring to him as the devil man, a nuisance, a thorn, that if left unchecked would grow to hurt them. The nickname is a play on Dave's last name, DeVillers. DeViller, devil man, you get the idea. I personally think it has a nice ring to it, and Dave definitely likes it. He says as soon as he found out that's what the criminal underworld was calling him, he owned it. But becoming the devil man came with some serious risks. He shared one story with me that I think really drives home the point of just how dangerous organized crime rings are. The X-Clan, who were, this was in the early 2000s, but there were um, professional hitmen here in Columbus, and, and they worked for other drug dealers. They'd go kill their rivals or kill their witnesses. This guy named Ronald Dawson was like the, the head of it. He just kind of big guy, a scar face, and really, really, I mean, he was, well, we were taken off his guys, you know, we really do it by conspiracy, we couldn't do a RICO, we had to do it kind of piecemeal, and for murders and trying to, he was in the press, he was out in the news saying, this is, you know, snitches get stitches, you gotta be careful what you look happy for, I mean, he's really trying to threaten us in the media, the, the, the FBI and the prosecutors and ATF, as an ATF agent that was working it too, and um, one day I'm driving home, we live in a place called New Albany at the time, and I wasn't paying attention to anything. I had this old kind of, I'm a state prosecutor at the time still, and a kind of a clunker. And I look out in the uh, back, and there's this, uh, you know, car with no front license plate, and kind of behind me, but downtown. But, and I hear honking because it doesn't want to get close to me. And I'm like, well, that's weird. But I didn't think anything of it, and I'm driving, and all of a sudden I'm on the highway near where my house is, and you see this car is just flying. It was, I was probably a mile in front of it. It starts flying through some people are honking because it's, it's trying to get through the traffic. And I'm like, that's that same? I'm like, what the f-? And you see a guy in the back seat with his knees kind of, where the windows in the back seat, like, like, like I don't know if he's got a gun. I couldn't say, I can't say he had a gun. I have no idea. But they're a comma, so I just hit it. And I know I need to get to a, a substation, a police station, which is kind of close to my house. And I went like, I run like a red light through like, this is this is rush hour. You know, I'm lucky I get it. And I'm like, I see them run it too. And I'm like, are you crazy? This guy's crazy. So I pull in, you see him kind of stop. You see him kind of take off and go. The cops, they run in as they, they tell them, they, they go and they get it. And so the next day, you know, we're like, I'm like, I want to, you know, I didn't even tell my wife. Cops came to the house. He's like, look, here's what we're going to do. I go, I want to follow me again. You know, I want to get this over with. I don't want to, you know, know think who did this. Because there was a bunch of gangs I was doing at the time. I figured it was this one. So I go to my uh, car. Um, and it's all planned out. There's helicopters. And now I do call my wife. God, Julia's cops out. They're going to come talk to you. They're undercover. So they come to the house. I mean, she just had a baby. And uh, they're like, hey, we're going to take care of this. We're just going to see if we can get them to follow him again. So I do my same, I walk to the, my park garage, get in the car, and this SWAT officer is in my, in hiding in, with a shotgun. He's like, hey Dave, I got the shotgun. I'm like, oh. In your backseat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm driving and uh, you know, nothing happens. No, but there's a helicopter over us and there's like all these other cars and all these radios going on. Like, no, no, no. We pull in and the cops in my house, you know, walk in. My wife's like, I'm like, hey baby, I'm home. <laughs> Dave evaded harm for that moment. But several weeks later, the threat reappeared. And this time, it had escalated. 
we ended up getting Dawson and going to trial. And during that trial, they tried everything to intimidate us and stuff. And I, I was like in the trial dealing a witness and I saw my boss and, and the SAC, the FBI SAC come in and I'm like finishing the witness and the judge calls us up and calls them up. They, David, your family's up. You get called. They're on their way to New York because they're, they're going to put a bomb in my house. So they gave them the state, New York State Troopers, and they, they flew with them to New York and uh, stayed there and the state troopers guarded them for, for that whole period. So we were on a SWAT protection for a year. I didn't drive my car for a year. They took my kids to school. It was, we were just under complete SWAT protection. Obviously, Dave is still around today, so it looks like his enemies are still losing. Throughout all of his years and the knowledge he took in about organized crime ideology and operations, that garnered him some special attention from the U.S. and foreign governments. In 2004, he was handpicked by the Department of Justice to assist in the prosecution of Saddam Hussein. We were trying to prove that the crimes against humanity, which were genocide, uh, mass deportation, I think there was a rape camp charge too, he conspired with these other people who were, you know, Secretary of Defense, um, the governors in, in Kurdistan that, that were, and they were trying to wipe out areas like there was Mosul, Kirkuk, which were Arab and Kurdish. They wanted to drive them out of there, right? They want to drive them out of there. They used chemical weapons. It was weapons of mass destruction used as well. The special weapons, he called them. Kidnapping someone from the, from the village, Putting him in a helicopter and drop him, dropping him in the in a square to terrify the people, so they'd flee the village, go in the valleys, and then they could kill them all with the the gas. Seriously dark stuff. Dave spent a lot of time learning about Saddam, just like he'd done for countless other gang leaders he'd put behind bars in America. He's not dumb. I mean, he was smart. And the things he did, it, it really was like organized crime again, in that it was all, everything he did was about existing, about keeping his power. That's all it was. After Saddam Hussein's eventual conviction and execution, Dave returned to the U.S. and continued fighting organized crime domestically, a mission he says protects thousands of people, both physically and financially. He's been credited for filing charges against government officials, business owners, and corporate investors who were accused of racketeering. I stewed on that, just what exactly his resume really meant to the general public as I left the golden lobby and security desk and crossed the street to get lunch before my flight home. Directly across from the Huntington Building is the Ohio State House, a historical landmark and the old home to Ohio's legislators. As I sat on a bench eating my lunch and watching an Ohio State trooper pace around the entrance, I wondered just how many people could have come in and out of that building over the years who maybe would have been afraid of the devil man. This episode of Dark Arenas was written and produced by Delia D'Ambra, with writing assistance from executive producer Ashley Flowers. You can find pictures and source material for this episode on our website, darkarenas.com. Dark Arenas is an Audio Chuck original show. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Voters know that bad weather, like storms, lightning, and wind, can turn a fun day on the water into a challenge. But what if you had satellite-delivered weather data giving you the full picture of what's around you, even when you're offshore and out of cell range? 
With SiriusXM Marine, get up-to-date weather and fishing info directly on your boat's display. Plus, you can add SiriusXM Entertainment. Visit SiriusXM.com Marine to learn more. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more 